Today we have Reshmi Hebar, a friend of mine from Atlanta, who is a tenured professor at Oglethorpe University. And if you haven't noticed, we have a lot of teachers on this podcast. We have more teachers coming up too. Obviously, we have a lot to learn. Welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Drabble, and today my guest is Reshmi Hebar. Hi, Lauren. Good to be here. Thanks for coming. So if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, you know I usually start off with how we met, and I love to hear it from the guest point of view. Okay, that's a cool idea. So I have a very vivid memory of this. I mean, it's it's not a particularly flashy memory, but it involves Borders Bookstore in Dunwoody in Atlanta, probably 1998. I want to say, winter. And I used to study there because my then, I guess, just then fiance, although like pretty much boyfriend, who is now my husband, Shvetal, lived across the street. And I would walk over from his apartment to study for grad school and use all of the borders texts for free. And, uh, and of course, sit in the cafe and drink coffee. And I saw this flyer that said Salsa Book Club. I don't remember what the flyer looked like, but I remember being struck by the idea of a salsa book club and what it meant was like multicultural literature or diversity in literature, something like that, which is what I was studying at Emory. And so I immediately asked for more information. And this is where it gets hazy. I don't know if we met in person or if someone told me, oh, you need to talk to Lauren. But then I remember meeting you and you look pretty much exactly like you look right now. Same, you know, shock of red hair. And then I also remember meeting with the other women in the Salsa Book Club at at the Borders. The, the concept was really cool. It was a diverse group of us too. And then you and I got more close because our husbands, like, I remember we were just like kind of couple friends for a while before you guys left Atlanta. And I remember meeting your son and I think your dog. <laughs> Probably. I take my dog everywhere. So, so that's yeah. what I remember. So let's start with diverse group because I've been thinking a lot about this now with, you know, what's going on in the world with the Black Lives Matter movement and how, I don't know, is it, is it sad if we consider a mostly group of white ladies with one Indian? <laughs> was that what it was? I feel like there were well, a couple of African-American women, women in that group. No? There were two African-American women for a while, and then the, um, the pediatrician lady dropped out okay. because she had triplets and had no time. Oh, wow. So I remember that. But anyway, so two African-American and then one Latina and one Indian. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is that d- diverse nowadays? And I think that sadly it is. It's better than my book group now. Yes. So, you know, now having paid attention to you over all these years after your move, I can see how unusual it was for that moment for someone to have started something like that in that part of town. Um, It was only because it was your baby that that I think happened there. I might have had a few thoughts, like I don't remember that group at all in terms of individual people, and your memory seems far more detailed about who was involved. It, you know, I'm, I've spent most of my life sort of, especially because I grew up in the South, 
thinking of diversity as like, I'll take what I can get, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. This moment is really unique in that it's taking everyone to task for not doing enough. But, you know, when you over, over where you are on the West Coast, it's a very different matter. And then where you're where you were born and where you're like sort of spent your early years is very different from where we are in the South, although the South is changing, but we remain very segregated. So again, I've always been happy for whatever I can get because of my age, too. I think if I were younger, like my students just, you know, they have had enough. I mean, they they want change immediately. They want structural change. And they don't seem to be aware of how far we've come, even, for example, of having a salsa book club in 1998 in what was predominantly a conservative enclave of Atlanta back then. So it's not a conservative enclave now? Well, it's really changed. Like, I wish I could give you a virtual tour of that neighborhood right now. Politics aside, I think culturally, it is an explosion of different perspectives. Um, It's a lot more walkable too, and it's very, very South Asian. So again, you know, my comment from before, it's not like you're seeing a lot of hybrid intermingling, but you are seeing way more non-white people there. You know, I remember I was driving there to a restaurant with my parents when they were visiting just maybe a year ago, and we counted 25 South Asians just walking between the MARTA station and where the borders used to be on the street as if it were Bombay, just, you know, enjoying the night air as any good city should give you the opportunity to do with sidewalks and amenities. And that part of town has really tried to offer that to its residents. So it's really changed. Well, I'll definitely have to plan a trip to Dunwoody when I ever get to travel to Georgia again. (laughs) All right, so let's go back. You were basically there only because Shveta lived across the street, is what I'm hearing. Yes, because I was actually living in Decatur, just about two or three minutes away from Emory's campus. And Shveta, like I said, at that point was my soon-to-be fiancé. He moved from New Jersey, and where he was living with his sister and commuting to Manhattan for his job. And that lasted um, almost a year before he said, that's it. And I think it was basically the winter he got really sick with just, I guess, New York in the air. He decided that that was it. He wanted to be in Atlanta with me. And he packed everything into his car, quit his job and moved to Atlanta. It was the height of the dot-com boom. So he was sort of, you know, where can I work? What can I do? There was a lot of lot of opportunity. And he ended up in Dunwoody, which was, wasn't too far away from Decatur. Maybe a 20-minute drive, 25-minute drive. And so he was there and I would kind of come and go from campus to see him. And do you have any um, of our theme topics of fate, coincidence, whatever you want to call it, you know, the universe is the big term for how you and Shvetel met in the first place? Oh, yes. In fact, I, uh, listening to some of your other samples, I made some notes and just like I think one of your other interviewees, I, I have a camp of mostly here personal personal universe type stories. I think the word that I would use here is fate, as cheesy as that is. I I do love Jung's concept of synchronicity. I've always been intrigued by that. So I think there are signs, there are ways that the universe throws people together. And I definitely feel that way about Shvetel. And so I have a story about that. um, If you'd like me to start with that. Yeah. Or a couple of of impressions, if you will. So 
Shwetho and I are unique in that we, we come from what he calls, he coined this phrase, the same corp ethnic subgroup, which is basically a corporate ethnic subgroup. I don't know if I ever talked to you about this, but... No, I have no idea what this means, and I'm sure no one else will. Right. So we are the children of 1960s Indian immigrants. And in his case, 1960s, in my case, my parents were both married and came in the early 70s, but my father was here in 68. And we we share a similarity in that both of our fathers came in the 60s when Johnson, after Johnson signed the, uh, the act lifting the immigration quota on Asians coming into the United States, you know, as part of the Civil Rights Act. So all of these uh, foreign engineers started to come, or foreign STEM skilled specific engineers started to come into the United States to be trained in graduate work. And so Schwethel's father came in 1964, went to the University of Kansas, and uh, my father came in 1968 and went to the University of Delaware. So similarly, you know, two state universities and they came to be trained and get a master's in engineering. Different, different subsects of engineering, but still. And oddly enough, this is where the sort of ooh, kind of coincidence stuff comes in, is a lot of these people who came from South Asia, and in particular India at that time, ended up in the Philadelphia area, or right outside of Philly, and sort of worked in Philadelphia or in the suburbs and lived in the suburbs. And so our parents actually lived between the late six, in in the early 70s, that is, the first few years, they lived in the same little little pockets, little satellites of Philadelphia. And I'm not familiar with the area. So all I can say is, you know, towns like Media and Seacane and I don't know what else, but they lived within a couple of miles of each other. They did not know each other, but they had a couple of good friends in common. So that's that. And so if you just think like early 70s, late 60s, Pennsylvania, there are South Asians, of course, but it's nothing like what you would imagine today. So I feel like they should have known each other. Like that's baffling to me, but they're not from the same part of India. And they, you know, my father was associating a lot with people that he had gone to college with, who had also come over to the States. So there might've been that kind of subdivision and the reason why they didn't meet, but they didn't meet. And I was born in 76 at Riddle Memorial Hospital in Media, Pennsylvania. Now that's kind of a name that you don't forget, right? And what's going to happen is sort of the, the, one of the weird things is when Shrethel was eight years old, this is after my family left Philly. So this is part of what happens in the sort of immigration networks that I am so fascinated by. All of us started out in the Northeast. And then by the time you get to the late 70s, people are filtering away to warmer climates. Some are trying to go west, right, where you were. And then Others of us ended up in the South. And so my family went to Tampa, Florida, and then I basically stayed in Florida until I went to Atlanta for graduate school. That's where I grew up was the state of Florida. And Shrethel's family stayed in Philadelphia. So when he was eight years old, he had a terrible, horrible bike accident. Like, you know, they were, you know, it was blood everywhere and his aunt was around and she, they were nervous for his condition and his nose got broken and just awful stuff. And he had to be taken to Riddle Memorial Hospital. And I don't know how long he stayed there, but that's where he stayed. So it's like when we were first getting together and we were talking about Philadelphia and I mentioned whatever little I know, uh, I, knew, I remembered or I knew, he 
brought that up, that that's the hospital where he had been, because it's a very traumatic incident in his life in terms of his childhood. He gets nervous every time our kids run off on their bikes. So that's the, our connection, the hospital that I was born in. I was born premature. So I was in the hospital for like, uh, you know, almost a month is the same hospital that nursed him when he was eight years old with that horrible bike accident. So there's that. But we weren't there at the same time because, of course, when he was eight, I was in Florida. So right. now the two of us also ended up at the University of Florida. He's two years older than me, and he transferred away from, from UF to UCF, University of Central Florida, in his last year or two. But once we got married, we were talking one night. I think we were having drinks or something. Uh, I want to say Chili's, which sounds so suburban and kind of awful, but that's where we were. <laughs> uh, maybe it was somewhere else. And he start, we started talking about University of Florida, and we realized that we were actually there at the same, we overlapped for one semester, which was my very first freshman you know, year, first semester experience. And not only that, but we realized that we, were actually, we actually attended the same party. <laughs> And we hadn't, we didn't talk, I'm talking like huge party, right? Hundreds of people. And the reason why this came up is because it was an Indian party. And so imagine I'm like maybe a month into my college experience at this point and I have no car. None of my friends have a car. We end up having to do that thing where you befriend someone that you don't particularly know all that well, or maybe don't want to spend that much time with because, you know, and you end up getting all kinds of people in a car and getting transported somewhere. So it was that kind of thing. And we went to an Indian party because I was curious, you know, what is this experience like now that I'm at a huge state school and there's so many more people like me? And am I, am I wanting to be this person? Like, am I going to find my people at this party? So my first college party, really, uh, really, if you don't count, like, you know, trying to go to a frat party and see what that's like. So I'm at this party and it's at just an unassuming garden apartment complex. And I'm there with maybe six other girls. And uh, we walk in and, you know, it's packed with people and we don't know anybody and we're freshmen. And we feel kind of foolish and awkward. And something within the first 20 minutes happens to really disgust us and we leave. And the thing that happens is what Shvetl is involved in happens is we're in a, again, packed apartment. We can't really see through to the next rooms. And this makes no sense. But again, it's a garden part. It's a garden apartment complex. But somehow there's a pool adjacent to the space that we were inside. And we hear like a commotion. And what has happened is a uh, filters back to us. And apparently some girl threw some guy in a pool. And of course, this filters back to us and we understand it to be some horrible Melrose Place drama that we don't want to have anything to do with. <laughs> These are really frivolous Indian kids. And, you know, just just from sort of being, being Indian and being on campus and being younger, we knew who they were talking about. But what we didn't know is that the girl who had, you know, I guess uh, a dramatic flair, when she pushed the boy into the pool, she was doing it because she was trying to make him, I guess she was angry at him. She was interested in him. It was clearly a romantic tip, but she had come to the party with Shvetl to make the other guy whom she threw into the pool jealous. Wow. This is what we found out over drinks that evening at the bar. And, I, you know, it, it was after we were married, I think. So it's always tickled me that, that we were so close to meeting. But honestly, if I had realized that he was with that girl, like, I don't know that I would 
<laughs> I would have wanted to talk to him, right? It's just a little too bridezilla-ish um, for me. So, and, and stuff like that, there's a lot of stuff like that. You know, he, he and I lived in the same neighborhood in Gainesville when uh, we were at the University of Florida, just like three houses separated from each other, but not at the same time, right? So I basically walked past his house in what's, what was called then the student ghetto every day on my way to class is my last year of college. And at that point, he wasn't there. And I did meet him when I was in college, when I was about to graduate, and he was about to graduate from University of Central Florida. I graduated a little early, so there was that. I did meet him when I was in college, but it was not in on campus or through any sort of college networking. It was through, again, a wedding from our corp ethnic subgroup. And I never explained what that is. So corporate ethnic subgroup our parents were trained as engineers our fathers in and they ended up in the philadelphia area and they ended up working for the same company which was at that point westinghouse i don't know if you remember here yes westinghouse which then became yes, siemens westinghouse and so they were westinghouse employees for you know something like 40 years and westinghouse would send people to different parts of the country so our family got sent transferred to florida and then let's see, you know, something like almost a dozen years later, Shreto's family got sent down to Florida, different town. And so our families were in this network, right? And when I was in college, my parents moved from where I grew up in Pensacola, Florida to Orlando, Florida. And they found that, you know, corp ethnic, corporate ethnic subgroup of engineers who worked for Westinghouse. And Shreto's family was in that, in that group. And one Christmas Eve, 1996, this was, again, this was right before my last semester of college and right before he graduated college, a member of that corp ethnic subgroup threw a Christmas Eve Indian engineers party, as they like to do. There were about, you know, 70 to 100 people probably there. And there were at least 20 young people there, anywhere from the age of, you know, 18 to 28. And he was one of them and he wasn't with his parents. So another sort of like weird thing to happen that he didn't need to come there because his parents weren't shepherding him to a cultural event as mine were taking me to this party with my brother and our relatives to sort of celebrate Christmas Eve, you know, as good Hindus do. But he was there and he was there because his mother was very good friends with the woman giving the party and he came to get fed. And so that's how we met at that time. I love that he came to get fed. That's so cute. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so did you hit it off right away at that party? Well, actually we, you know, like good Indian kids, we didn't actually talk <laughs> at that party, but we did a week later, a little bit when he had a very different kind of party from the one that I talked about before. He was throwing a New Year's party, but only five people came because it was more of a soiree and it was at his parents' house. And I guess he didn't want to trash his parents' house. So that's where I talked to him a little bit and I was very interested, but we didn't really get a chance to, to talk, talk until another event happened in our community. Again, community is, a, is an interesting word here because these are not people that I grew up with. It's just people that I was, I was meant to identify with because they were my parents' circle of friends and they were in my parents' circle of friends largely because of the intellectual enterprise in which like the husbands were engaged in as engineers. And so one of their daughters, another friend's daughter, was getting married and having a wedding reception in Orlando for all of us to, I guess, be a part of her wedding. And that was spring break of my last semester of college. I went and Shreta was there and we sort of hit it off and started communicating after that. And then 
less than a year later, he was in Atlanta. So that's that. I, there's something else kind of neat about that. The, the, the young lady um, who got married and where we sort of had our first deep conversations and stuff, Shrethel and I, she delivered both of my daughters uh, because she, at that point, was a, I think she was already in residency, in her residency program in med school. But she became a doctor, obviously, and moved to Atlanta. And, or she was in Atlanta at that point, but she stayed in Atlanta. And then she was able to deliver our girls um, something like seven and nine years later. So she wasn't your pediatrician? She was my gynecologist and obstetrician. Okay. So. But you didn't know that when you first started seeing her as a doctor. Oh, no. Like, I'm sorry. Piece I did. It together. I did. I totally you did. did. Okay. I wanted to okay. continue the story, right? Like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's one of those unconscious factors at work, too, that, I mean, I trusted her because she was in my family circle. So when it came time to, you know, have a doctor when I got pregnant, I mean, I wanted her, no question. So let's go back to what was little girl Reshmi like? Was she a big reader or how did she become the woman that I know? Yes, I was a voracious reader. Um, starting at age eight, I want to say, my I, I went to this really sweet elementary school where mothers mostly would come in, I guess sometimes fathers would come in and do like a mystery reader program, right? They would read from like Little House in the Prairie books. And if it wasn't the parents volunteering, the good thing is that, you know, starting in second grade and then definitely in third grade, every day, I, I want to say right before lunch or after lunch, we would have like a period of like a half an hour where the teacher would read to us. And it was hands down my like the favorite my favorite part of the day because these teachers, my third grade teacher in, in particular, Mrs. Lanier, they would read books that it may not have occurred at that age for uh, to my parents to have found for us, right? Because not having grown up in the States, they wouldn't have known necessarily to look for Beverly Cleary. Although my parents like were definitely, I mean, my mom, like, you know, I was like, reading at the age of three, like they, they definitely sat with us and like joined weekly reader programs and stuff. But I think there's something about being of the culture that allows you to know sort of who are the authors that you want to impart to your children. That's right. I do that now with my girls. And so I discovered Beverly Cleary because of my third grade teacher and her reading of one of the Henry Huggins books. And I started reading the Ramona books by Beverly Cleary. And there was something about the narration of Ramona's frustration of like being misunderstood and sort of being being always sort of hard on herself and then having to learn a lesson at the end that I just responded to. And I remember I would go to, I would go everywhere with like every single Ramona Quimby book at, in third grade. And so this is beyond what the teacher was reading in class. And, you know, it got to the point where like I would go to, you know, my parents would would go to dinner parties on the weekends with all their other Indian friends and I would just take the books with me and that's what I would read. So, you know, Beverly Cleary, who is, is has always been very important to me for that reason, led me to all kinds of other writers and we had a, a good library at the elementary school. I can remember vividly going maybe as a third or fourth grader and finding The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and then also finding Pippi Longstocking. Like I can remember somehow being intrigued by just the titles and then picking the books up in elementary school and then taking them home. And then, of course, asking to be taken to the public library. I mean, it was, I tell this story a lot to my girls to illustrate how important reading was to me. Uh, there was one summer, I think it was the summer before fourth grade. It might have been before fifth grade. I checked out eight or nine books at the same time. Like I'm talking chapter books from public library. My mother brought me home 
and I was just wanting to read. My best friend had left and uh, moved out, moved away six months earlier. So I might've been in a kind of a funk, right? Like, you know how girls are at that age, they have these sort of serially monogamous relationships with one best friend. And when something happens to that best friend, they're searching for a new best friend. And so I must've been reading a lot more than normal. And my mother must've been concerned because she said, you know, I want you to do something today. I don't want you to sit here and just read these books. I want you to pick up the phone and I want you to call. And she gave me the name of somebody who would eventually become one of my best friends, if not best friend, by the time middle, middle school and high school hit, came around. But at that point, I was terrified of calling. Um, and my mother kept saying, no, you can't just sit in here. I think it was her version of like, leave your comfort zone. And I remember being in the bedroom with my eight books. And she said, I'm not going to let you read these until you pick up the phone and you just say, hi, how are you? What's going on this summer? So I did it because I desperately wanted to read those books. And it was a totally normal conversation. Nothing happened to me. I, I didn't feel awkward. It just, you know, you have to teach kids those skills sometimes because they think everything is so uncool that is unfamiliar to them. Yeah, so I, I, I always read. Um, and then I wanted to be a, a writer even when I was um, 11. I had great teachers encouraging me. I mean, just really wonderful people throughout late elementary school, through high school. And um, that's what I was going to do. I was going to just, you know, make that my world. And so being in a position now where I, I get to surround myself with the teaching of literature and inspiring other people, I mean, it, it's second nature, but it's also huge honor. And you knew right away when you were young that you, that's what you wanted to do. I knew right away when I was young that I wanted to be a writer. I did, I did not you know, sit down and say, hey, I think I'm going to become an academic. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, 11 to 14 year olds make those kinds of decisions today. But I, I don't know that that was happening back then. The, the academia side came from just, I guess, having a safety net and having professionalized skills that you can fall back on. And I have to say, seeing what, you know, over the last 20 years in particular, just what writers have to do to make a living, right? Even the ones who are getting published, the ones that we would call successful, I guess, have to have some other form of employment because the market, as receptive as we still seem to be to different writers, and the fact that we're still reading today astonishes me because I think the New Yorker predicted like the end of novels in 2008 or 2010, right? And here we are still reading novels. It's you know, we're still writing, we're still reading, we're still talking about what we're reading. You know, books are still being made into fantastic television series and films, but writers cannot afford anymore to live like Beverly Cleary at, in the, back in the 50s when she was, you know, coming up with an idea and then getting encouraged to keep sort of fleshing it out as far as I, as far as I understand to be true in her career. So it's, it's different now. Yeah, it's a tough, tough racket that you are constantly marketing instead of writing. So do you have any, and we'll use your preferred word of fate driven stories about getting into your profession? Yes. Fate driven stories about getting into my profession. Um, so I, I guess I have, I have two smaller things and I, I don't, I still don't know what word I would use except to say that it, it's important to be, I think it's important to be open to what signs out there might be telling you, you know, the whole the, the old adage of one door closes another window opens or however you might phrase it in terms of my current job 
as a professor at Oglethorpe. I'm an associate professor of English. I, so I finished, you know, I, I started the whole, my whole talk with you with talking about grad school at Emory and I was young. I finished young. I got out pretty fast uh, and I got out in five years, which is relatively fast for a PhD program in the humanities. And it was a grueling experience for me. I felt like going straight from my undergrad time to graduate school that I really needed to um, sort of experience other things. And so Trethel and I did some traveling for a while. We came back and I adjuncted a little bit. And basically what happened when I was trying to figure out sort of this is my late 20s now and I'm trying to figure out like, do I really want to be an academic? And then I was sort of all these things happened at once. Professionally, some good stuff happened. And I became sort of more committed to this line. And I was up for a job, a really, really good job. I won't mention names, but for me, it would have been, you know, an awesome opportunity to stay in Atlanta and to teach a really interesting group of students and sort of, uh, I, and I had actually taught there as a part-time, you know, adjunct professor. And so I felt like I knew the community and I didn't quite get the job. I was just, you know, like think second in line or something for the job. And it was devastating for me. And it was so devastating to the extent that I think it really subconsciously affected how I thought about my future in academia, even after I seemed to recover and sort of you know, I got some fellowships and I got some employment eventually that wasn't like as permanent as that opportunity would have been had I gotten it. But I was a little rattled. And um, also at that time, this is my late 20s, I was thinking about sort of, you know, Shrethel and I starting a family. And I did get a semi-permanent job as a fellow at Georgia Tech. And that was designed basically to train you to commit to academia after three years, a wonderful program called the Britain Fellowship. And so What's weird is I later found out that the person who got the job that I was up for had actually already done that program. So go figure, right? That was useful to know. And then interestingly, I, you know, I had my two girls at, in the same three-year period that I was working as a fellow at Georgia Tech. And when I was having my second kid, I knew that I wanted to, after the fellowship ended, I just wanted to take a break and I wanted to just try writing and just sort of put academia on the back burner because I'd done nothing but it, even though I'd intended to try so many other things, uh, it just hadn't worked out. I'd only been an academic really, so or worked at a university really. So after my second daughter was born and my, my fellowship ended, it was just beautiful timing. I took some time off. I was at home for five years and I did all kinds of writing and at some point, I realized probably year three and a half into staying at home with my kids and their toddlers at this point, right, that I needed to get back to do something professional. And my, you know, my mind was hungry. And I started to put together a project. And in researching marketing this project that I was working on, which was oddly enough, a podcast or, or almost a podcast, I... I, I realized that nobody would take me seriously unless I had um, an affiliation with the university, that I wasn't el going to be eligible for grants or any kind of, you know, recognition or even an ability to market myself unless I went back to teaching or had some relationship with the university. So, you know, I dusted off my CV and my syllabi and eventually ended up, this, this is now almost six years after I said, that's it. I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to do what I can without the academic stuff. And 
I think I might have even sold some of my really important books, which I've now had to frantically go back and try to get again. But the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that I one thing led to another again very quickly, and I ended up adjuncting at this wonderful place, which is now my permanent home. And then I realized that there was this um, wonderful permanent job that they were doing a national search for and that they would be willing to consider me for. And after sort of three really anxiety-ridden months, maybe even four, of applying for the job, I got it. And um, after all the excitement had sort of calmed down and I was able to sort of look at it from a distance, I realized that where I am now is so much better for me and sort of my family needs, my needs to be a part of a sort of specific cultural community, than if I had gotten that old job that I didn't get and that I felt dejected over some, I think, 11 years earlier by that point, if I'm doing my math correctly. So the bottom line here is, you know, the identity that I enjoy now, or I don't know if enjoy is the right verb, but who I am now in terms of a somewhat resistant suburban mother, you know, member of a South Asian community and someone who can commute to work you know, by using the back roads and someone who has sort of this outsider perspective, who's not living right in the place where I thought I was going to live and enjoying the kind of job that I thought I really wanted. I, I really feel like for the kind of life balance, work-life balance that I, I needed in my life, what I have now is exactly what I needed. That if I had received the opportunity that I was seeking all those years ago and was so upset about not getting, I would have become a very different person and probably miserable, except perhaps unconscious to it. So the, the balance that I needed was actually provided to me by giving me a, a window opening up at another time. So that's that. And the other... Well, before we move on, just to kind of finish that one up. So it sounds like what you're saying is that not necessarily everything that you envisioned about yourself and your life was wrong and that the universe provided something better. Yes. Uh, thank you for saying it so much more elegantly than I did. Uh, I <laughs> well, you, did. You had to tell me the story. I get to synthesize. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely think I remember saying to my husband and maybe even my parents or uh, friends of mine, like that this, the role that I have now is so much better. And it's actually now I know this because now I'm an academic, it's actually more permanent <laughs> than the role that I had not received before. And so somebody or something was looking out for my future, I think, in a way that I just couldn't see when I was younger because I was so caught up with titles and glamour and, you know, that kind of stuff in the way that younger people are, right? Yeah. Or more caught up with stuff then. But what is your title at Oglethorpe? I'm an associate professor. So I got tenure last year, or I can't remember when I, 2018. Congratulations. I, no, 2019. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. So that is, and I'm in the English department, but I, I, I teach literature. I teach mostly what I call multicultural and global literature. And do the students appreciate that global point of view or they, it's just a requirement and who cares? I actually, I think, I think Oglethorpe students are in amazingly open to new perspectives, even the ones that, you know, I, I teach in two different capacities. I teach in the English department most of the time. Most of my courses are, you know, for people who are, have signed up to be in these classes. Again, most classes they elect to take. Um, not e they're not even required, I, although I do have one required class. 
Then the other capacity is that I teach in our sort of general ed program or a core curriculum where I get the freshmen. And that's where we do the job of sort of introducing them to, you know, great books or masterworks of literature. And we try to do as much as we can to diversify the curriculum. And I think, you know, I've taught all over Atlanta and I, I say this to my students all the time. I think Oglethorpe students are interestingly the most open to new perspectives. Um, they, they're, they're also, I hope I'm not jinxing anything by saying this, and they're also the most respectful, just, just lovely people that you could teach. So yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I have to cram any information into anybody's head. Well, that's wonderful. So, so you know that part of the component of the podcast, just because it's the way life is and how books become important to your life. Obviously, you've mentioned Beverly Cleary. What multicultural author impacted you the most? And do you get to teach that author? Okay, so that's a great question. When I was in graduate school, so this is when I was sort of putting together my professional identity, which I get to sometimes come back and tap into. But also when you're at a small liberal arts college like Oglethorpe, you have to sort of teach all over the place sometimes. But um, when I was in grad school and sort of getting to know you, the person would have been Maxine Hong Kingston, right? The the big name from the late 20th century um, when mm-hmm. multiculturalism was just starting to mm-hmm. take off um, and The Woman Warrior, which was published in the mid-70s. Maxine Hong Kingston wrote this, it's hard to know whether to call it a novel or a memoir. It's sort of a blur of genres about a girl growing up on the West Coast and living with the ghosts of the chi- the stories of her parents' Chinese um, experiences, basically, or, ex- or experiences in China. So there's a lot of China, but it's hyper-real China because Maxine has never been to China. So she's sort of getting China through like these mandates from her parents and the stories that they tell her. So that really struck me, especially the the feminist subtext of that text. And like I was, you know, in grad school, not realizing that I was really a feminist I guess having some indication, but not really realizing to what extent I was. And then literature sort of opened that up when I read her words. But she also had a quote that really struck me. And that was, I did not know what my village was. It's, it's a much more effective uh, quote. Hits you when you read it in the context of uh, the chapter. But she's talking about the fact that her parents are always dealing with what the villagers are going to think if Maxine doesn't perform or, you know, comply with, social norms uh, to the best of her ability, even being raised in, uh, on the West Coast. And so you have Maxine here understanding that there are no villagers really around anymore for her parents, but yet they're somehow dictating what she is supposed to do. And at the same time, there are villagers because there, are, there is the sort of the diasporic influence, right? There are Chinese Americans living where she lives um, in San Francisco. And so they're there, but they're not the same villagers her parents are talking about. So I love that because, you know, growing up in Florida in the 80s, you know, I often felt like I did not know where my village was, but I was definitely conscious that there was a village that my parents were trying to um, keep in their minds. So uh, I would say Maxine Hunt Kingston. Um, today, the people that I teach, one of the writers you, you already mentioned on your, or, sorry, one of your earlier episodes uh, with your cousin, I believe, and that would be, I teach Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's, a lot of her stuff, but I, I love teaching Americana. And I think particularly for this day, this moment in time, it's a really important novel. Another, I mean, I teach, I do teach quite a bit of black fiction because um, African-American lit was one of my fields in grad school, along with Asian-American lit. And the, the novel that I absolutely like just 
took my breath away in the last couple of months while I taught it was uh, the Nickel Boys. He just, Colson Whitehead just won the Pulitzer Prize again. I think it's the second time in four years, but it might even be three years that he won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, he's a bit ridiculous, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Overachiever, that one. Um, yeah, and you know, somebody else I'd like to keep up with, and I'm, I'm hoping to get my, my mitts on soon, is Gish Jen. Um, she's an Asian-American writer out of Cambridge, and she's written a novel called The Resistors that I want to get my hands on. I haven't been able to read that yet. But yeah, I, I, I love all kinds of stuff. I love, I just recently just started bawling at the end of a older Elizabeth Strout novel called Abide With Me, which I think in terms of the different tribes that we have in America today might be useful for anyone to read to try to understand a different kind of Christian perspective and a small town a small town realm, right? Where people tend to be very, what the word is, um, insular in their point of view. And just, it, it gets inside of that mentality and it sort of blows it wide open in terms of the emotions people can feel. So Elizabeth Stroud is a huge favorite author of mine as well. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm reading these days. Well, that's great. I'm really glad you get to teach things that really matter to you too, not just you know, curriculum. So that's good. So I'm ready for your other little small story, if that's okay with you. Oh, sure. So again, I think this connects with, I don't know if it's professional stuff because it's not really related to what I do and get paid to do, right? But as you, as you know, I, you know, I recently had a short work of fiction published and it, it represents, as it was published online, and it represents for me sort of my attempt to take my academic career back onto the creative track. And I say back, but really it's not been there, right? I've been sort of sidetracked by my investments in academia and in scholarship and I guess my other passion. But deep down, I know that there's something that I want to say. And I've been, I guess, maybe avoiding it or doing what comes easiest for me, that is the academic stuff, and not really challenging myself enough with dealing with the certain rejection, right? Like the, the certain, like the harder aspects of trying to put yourself out there as a creative writer. So the, the story was published and it was, it features, it's somewhat autobiographical, but not not my experience. And it discusses the lives of four teenage girls, 13 through 15, and they're at a temple camp, a Hindu temple camp in Pennsylvania. And it's all about the experiences of the central heroine who is sort of dealing with her sexuality and sexual orientation at that point. And, you know, I had a blast writing the story because I was sort of trying to go back and remember what the late 80s and the early 1990s were like you know what was what was the culture like you know what were the pop cultural references what were the clothes like and of course when you have a memory like mine like there are a lot of these things that have stuck and those little bits that I was using to sort of add details to the story and one of them was French braiding right because I watched my mother whenever she comes here to visit me uh, and, and, the, and my daughters, right? And she's constantly French braiding their hair and they love it. Like, you know, my eldest in particular loves to show up at school with these elaborate, you know, braids done by her grandmother because I am hopeless. I, I never braid their hair. I don't know how to French braid, certainly. So again, I say this because I have no connection to fr French braiding except through my mother's ability to do it for my daughters. I never went to school with French braids. Okay, so I get my story published. I'm feeling good. And then 
of course, because the pandemic is here and we all have time on our hands, I've spent the last couple of weeks going through all kinds of old letters and boxes of stuff, you know, high school yearbooks and notes. And I find a diary. I find all my diaries, actually. And I'm going back and looking through the diary that led to so I actually did attend a camp like the one that I discuss in this story and some more stories that I'm working on. And I have, I can picture these girls, these characters in my mind. But what I didn't realize is, and I didn't, didn't know until I went back and looked at my diary, that the summer preceding the one where I went to camp for the first time, I have written, like I, I was so hungry for a particular kind of experience, which is what must have motivated my parents to send me away because I left Florida and I was flown to Pennsylvania to attend this camp. Can you imagine? So I was, this was at the end of my eighth grade year. And I guess I was really hungry for the kind of experience that I just couldn't have in Pensacola and in North Florida where I was living. And I wrote in my diary, this whole scenario of being in I think I even mentioned a dormitory, although I wouldn't have even known what a dorm was, but a setting that was, it was almost halcyon, right? It was this golden lit, sunlit sort of space with these four girls who are just getting to know each other, maybe four or five girls, and they're sitting on the bed and someone is French braiding my hair and I'm happy and I'm laughing and I feel like I'm having deep connections with people. So that was the sort of mantra throughout my diaries that I was not feeling connected with the people that I was best friends with anymore. I needed something else. And I needed to find something by leaving my hometown for a while. And it turns out that I described exactly the scenario that, you know, 30 years later, I would feature in a short story, which was girls sitting around having a seemingly inane conversation about music um, and boys or whatever they're talking about. And I don't feature those details in my diary, but I feature a mood and I talk about having a French braid and I describe my clothes. And those are some of the exact same details I put in the story. So I was sort of showing that to my husband and saying, I don't know how this happened because I've not read this diary in 30 years. I've not seen that page. So somehow deep in my unconscious, subconscious, it was there. And the whole French braiding thing, I really thought I put in there because of my daughter's. But there must have been something else going on with a different side of me that I wanted to expose somehow through having my hair be different. That's my story. <laughs> That's adorable. It really is. And um, where was your camp in Pennsylvania? It was in Western Pennsylvania. So it, it was through the Pittsburgh SV Temple. But the camp itself was at that year was at Slippery Rock University. Oh, which yeah. was west of there. So in in your life, as you look back at on these fateful type stories for you, does, and if so, how does uh, Hinduism, because you're still Hindu, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of like a cultural Hindu. Um, you know, my family, we don't attend temple. My husband is Jain, actually. So, oh. right, a lesser known religion from that part of the world, from India. And his parents are very devout, right? Shvetal is culturally, <laughs> I mean, he, he sort of, you know, he's like me, like we are a part of the community. We attend festivals, especially when they overlap between the Jain and Hindu communities. But we don't, I think it's basically where we live. Um, we don't live near within, within 20 minutes of a temple, which would make it really easy for us. So I've done, I've done whatever I can to sort of maintain 
an identity in a non-religious sense, more of a cultural sense, you know, in terms of parent networks and networks for our, our children, educating them about our heritage, um, when that was really important when the kids were younger. So, but, you know, it's funny, some, a colleague of mine mentioned my, my story as being about the American Hindu experience. And I guess that's true, but I guess it's just like writers who try to talk about the Jewish experience who may not be talking about Judaism, right? It's more like you belong to a community and all types of perspectives are possible under that umbrella that may or may not be necessarily by the book. So I'm just wondering, what does, if it does, a Hindu perspective on stories of how the universe and fates have shaped your life factor in to you and your perspective? Because, you know, you would think, I guess, that maybe a I just lost the word. The opposite of a monotheistic religion. Polytheistic. Polytheistic. Thank you. I was thinking pan. I just can't get it. So does a polytheistic perspective open you up more, do you think, to the belief or not maybe a belief, but acceptance of fate or the universe acting in your life more so than a monotheistic, you think, or vice versa, maybe less because, you know, that whole personal relationship with that monotheistic God, they are active in your life, maybe more directly. Wow. That is a fascinating question. And, you know, it makes me wish that I had been really practicing more. I mean, I have not thought about polytheism versus monotheism in many years. Um, you know, the, the thing that we, I think even my kids understand here is that the polytheism of Hinduism is just symbolic for most of us, that it's really just representations of the idea of God. So, um, and because of India is such a diverse place, so many different languages and, and regional identities that, that there have to be different manifestations of the same idea. So I personally don't have, you know, an understanding of how different gods and my understanding of them might be affecting my perspective on fate. But I will say that I've always been struck, especially as a young person, when I really was thinking about all this, like, you know, in my experience at places like temple camp that I attended and when I was far more impressionable, my experience with Hinduism as a teen in particular was that it was more philosophical than I had ever imagined. It wasn't about following rules or being a member of a congregation. It was really about your understanding of the depths and the potential inside you. And I understand that to be similar to a certain kind of Christian thought as well, but it was way obvious in terms of, you know, spiritual teachers coming to talk to us that, you know, we're sort of in, in battle with ourselves, our own fears, our own inhibitions. And when that started to make sense to me, I... I guess something in me may have opened up to the interconnectedness of all faiths and being open to what the universe is telling you. I mean, I, I, to answer your question a little bit more simply, I don't know that, that Hinduism specifically has, has affected or impacted my outlook on fate or coincidence. Um, I had not thought of that, honestly, Lauren, um, because I guess Hinduism is more sort of in me than literally telling me what to do, right? Um, it sort of informs, and my, limit, my limitations with understanding it because of sort of my age and where I grew up, um, young Hindu kids today, you know, they got their temple every Sunday. I mean, they've got way more access to maintaining cultural traditions than I did. And that was partially because you were in Florida, right? Precisely, yeah. 
And of course, now that it could all be corrected, but I think maybe because I am an academic and, you know, I've had all kinds of friends from all different, all different cultural backgrounds and religious persuasions that it's more of an intellectual experience for me, right? Um, more and definitely spiritual, but more so, like, like I said, philosophical and critical thinking endeavor than a specific God talking to me, right? Or a specific um, one of those polytheistic identities you mentioned. So I think it's a fascinating question again, but I don't know that I, I'm the person to answer it because it's not as if the religion has been informing the way that I look at the world. Honestly, it might, it might just be literature. Like it might be stories, right? That have impacted me and affected me and allowed me to see Hinduism in the way that I see it as this sort of set of themes about challenging yourself. Because I know that there are people not too far from here where I'm sitting who have a completely different, far more traditional understanding of what Hinduism is to them. Right, right. Part of me wants to go back to college now after talking to you. <laughs> oh, I'd love to go back. <laughs> yeah. As a student, it's always better than the teacher, huh? Yeah, yeah no question. Well, because I remember when I first started off in college, I went to Cal State Long Beach and I took a Hinduism class, probably the hardest class I could have ever taken. But my point is that the person taught it like like literature, like almost like a mythology class, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and um, there are or there were classes all across the country back then of the Bible as literature. Yes, they still have those. Yeah, they still have those. Mm -hmm. But but do they have Hinduism as literature? Do they have Gosh. Judaism as literature? You know, wow. it's just that to me is kind of synonymous with white cultural, the pervasive dominant cultural privilege of when you have to say, oh, well, well, but what if you just look at it as literature instead of being religion? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think I'd, I, I could answer that better if Oglethorpe had a religion department. They, they have, um, we have some scholars in anthropology who get us close, but we don't have a religion department. Now, Emory did and does. And I think that would be the place to look if you're really curious to see. I'm sure that Emory, like they have to have offered something like mythology of Hinduism, right? But this is reminding me of someone else that I teach that's going to surprise you because this is not a sort of 21st century multi-culti voice. But I teach Joseph Campbell at least sections of his era with a thousand faces. I mean, I'm talking like sections within sections of chapters for my freshmen who, who take my global literature course. I've been doing it for like five or six years back to back. I'm teaching the same sort of essays from or same sections from that work. And I think Joseph Campbell, like back in 1949, right? Or was it 1955? Like somewhere in the middle of the 20th century when he was putting that first book out, um, one of many books about sort of Eastern spirituality and the influence of interconnectedness of different faiths within the hero's journey, the monomyth, all that stuff. I think he has also unconsciously influenced the way that I think about what your podcast is about here, fate and circumstance or coincidences. Um, you know, he talks about in the middle of the 20th century, there's this seismic sort of shift as more and more people are going to therapists and getting psychoanalysis done on them because they've been separated from the role of ritual in their lives, right? Rituals had been so important to so many traditional societies for eons, right? Until you arrive, bam, into like modernity and slowly the role of not just God, but ritual begins to be less and less pervasive in industrialized, modernized societies. 
So Joseph Campbell looks at that as if it's a huge ailment for society, not in the religious sense, right? But in the sense of not having an understanding of who you are in relation to your community and what your purpose is in life. And you might remember that, like the phrase, follow your bliss. Mm-hmm. Where Oprah, I think, tossed it around a little bit. Well, that comes from Joseph Campbell. And, you know, he has all these writings about man being transformed when he's able to go deep inside himself, like the original heroes did going into the cave, right? And fighting the dragon and the dragon being the demon inside you. Um, I mean, those ideas are fantastic. I mean, my students respond to them. I love them. And I think what that, I think it's that the metaphor, right? The metaphors that seem to change over different generations to say that there is something that can transform you and transform your perspective. And for Joseph Campbell, it was the power of myth. And for someone like me, it's the power of story. And so I think, again, coming back to your your point here, that story and religion somehow intermingle for me. Oh, totally for me too. And I really appreciate you bringing him up because I love him and I love all the different books of his that you were able to just rattle off there, right there. And I actually had a teacher who went through Joseph Campbell and we went through the hero's journey. And yeah, that is a great thing for all students to realize that stories from the beginning of time till now are essentially the same and unifying. And I've been thinking a lot about the lack of ritual that you were, that you just brought up. I've been thinking about that really a, a lot recently since the Black Lives Movement started because it harkens back to the Occupy movement and the big complaint, for lack of a better word, of the Occupy movement was that it wasn't focused. And the same thing has happened a little bit with BLM and the defund the police and all of these things about the progressive liberal side of the country, how it is lacking in a unifying message that people can get behind an agenda platform. And what I've seen is that they try to include everything and then the platform and the agenda is, you know, pages long where the opposite side is really simple. Make America great again. And I've recommended this on an earlier podcast. So you've probably heard about it. The 10% Happier podcast by Dan Harris. He had on a really, really great Black Lives Matter uh, movement speaker and advocate and activist. And I cannot remember his name right now, but I can look it up uh, before I publish all this. And they were talking about the movement and, you know, what Black people need to do, what white people need to do, what the country needs to do. And the the Black advocate guy says to Dan, who's white, well, what does our side have? And he made Dan think. And Dan's like, um, a lot of great Twitter activity. <laughs> and, you know, the advocate says, what does the other side have? And he's like, oh my God, you know, all of these concrete actionable things. And subconsciously, as I'm hearing him talk to Dan Harris, I'm thinking, yeah, we don't have the right amount of buy-in for rituals for people to buy into the progressive side. Because as he was illustrating, he was like, they've got white nationalism. They've got the KKK. They've got a way in that has community, membership, ritual, a place to know where your place is, where your village is, who's in your village, you know? And 
all of this is just sort of circling in my head as you're talking, thinking that, yeah, we need, we need a village and we need ritual to bring people into that community. That is a really great point. I'll have to think about that. I can send you the link to that particular yes, podcast. It's, it's, mm, it's very troubling for a white person, I have to say. I don't know how you'll respond to it, you know, mm -hmm. but I can say because you're a person of color and you're going to have a totally different reaction to it than I did. But mm -hmm. I, was, uh, I was very moved, but I was also sort of chastised. And um, <laughs> yeah, at one point, the black guy says to Dan, uh, don't talk to me about this. There's no point talking to me about this. You need to talk to other white people. Right. I've been hearing that a lot more from activists and scholars of color saying that, right, that the conversations need to be sort of more white on white than people of color and black people in particular explaining how they feel right. and what they think needs to happen. Well, anyway, I'm just glad that you brought up Joseph Campbell because I was like, yes, <laughs> that's like all of the synthesis has been going on in my head right there. Like, boom, right. him. And it, it always comes back to myth. Yes, yes. that's true, Lauren. I think that if you could go back and maybe ask me now which word, well, I don't know if I'd still say myth because there's something kind of stigmatized about myth, but I definitely say metaphor yeah. in terms of me. Yeah, food for thought, ritual in progressive action. Yes, I think that's the future. I think that's the way to make it work so that people aren't disenfranchised. Exactly. Yeah. Well, my dear, I've kept you over time because I could talk to you all night. It's been really fun, Lauren. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank right. you. Thank you, Reshmi. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed speaking with Dr. Reshmi Hebar. She's so kind and polite. She didn't even tell me that I should be addressing my dear old friend as doctor. Our very first doctor on Revel Revel, and she's too modest to brag about it. Well, that was kind of her. Of course, in the interim, I have found the Dan Harris 10% Happier episode and I have linked it to the website. So I hope that that made sense what I said there then. But if it didn't, it hopefully would after you listen to that. And Reshmi has provided a whole bunch of links herself, including a podcast that she's worked on. So man, you've got a lot to keep you busy until I can get another episode out, which will be at least a week, if not two. And that will be Robert Pachilio. So stay well, stay safe, keep growing, keep listening, keep evolving, and keep making this world a better place, Revelers. Mm -hmm.